I want you to picture being in a courtroom and you're on the stand. You've taken, taken the box there. And as you're watching, someone comes and begins to accuse you. And they begin to throw all kinds of accusations against you about what you have said and what you have done and what you haven't done that you should have done and all of the things that are wrong and evil and dirty and dark about you in front of everyone. Everyone sees it. Everyone hears it. In fact, it's televised the world over. Your friends and your family, those you hold dear and those that don't know anything about you are aware of all of these ugly, terrible things about you. But then it gets worse because as you're hearing and listening to all these things, you actually come to the point of realizing they're all true. The one accusing you is not ex- extending the truth, exaggerating the truth. And that weight of helplessness, hopelessness, darkness, and depression sweeps over you because you know that there is absolutely nothing you can do to change the truth of these words. Well, Zechariah 3 contains the fourth of eight visions that he saw on the night of February 18th, 519 B.C. And think of it kind of like a pyramid as you start from both sides and work your way to the top the middle section of these visions are where the main emphasis lie, both with Joshua here as the high priest, and then we'll see next week, Lord willing, Zerubbabel the governor. And in this vision, Zechariah finds himself observing a courtroom drama. And Joshua the high priest is the defendant. Satan is the prosecuting attorney. The angel of the Lord is the defense attorney, and they are all standing there before the judgment seat of God. And Satan has come to bring charges against Joshua. But from the outset, you need to understand that because of Joshua's role as the high priest, he actually represents all of God's people. We know from places like Exodus 19 verse 6 that God had designed for His covenant nation to be as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so what we'll find here is true of Joshua in these verses is also true of all God's covenant people. And so I would encourage you as we read this text to just Let the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ wash over you. This is one of my favorite texts in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament. And it's one of those texts that you really just need to read and then sit down. But we will spend some time meditating on it this morning. Let's ask the Lord's help. Father, we ask that you might get glory as your word is read and explained and applied that you would do that work by your spirit. 
Not because of anything great I have planned to say, but because of the simple beauty, the profound eternal significance of what we are about to read. We pray for those here that do not yet know Christ, that you might use this time in your word to open their eyes to the glory of the gospel, to save their souls, that they might find healing and cleansing from Christ. We pray that you might encourage the brothers and sisters who are already trusting in Christ to believe and to know and to see who they are in Christ afresh this morning so that you might get the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Zechariah 3. You'll find it on page 671 in the Pew Bible. If you want to turn there, we're going to read the first five verses to start. And in these first five verses, we see only the Lord can take away our filthiness and make us pure. Only the Lord can take away our filthiness and make us pure. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So Satan levels his accusations against Joshua, but the Lord responds by rebuking him emphatically. Satan calls for God to condemn Joshua, but God reminds him that he has chosen him. And it's impossible for God to condemn the very ones he himself has chosen. They are his covenant children. Now their sin had landed them in the fire of his judgment for a time, even as they experienced exile away from the promised land. But he wouldn't allow them to stay there forever, both literally in bringing them back, as we've been seeing in Haggai and Zechariah, but also spiritually in providing their deliverer. He had snatched them like a stick from the flames. And he wouldn't allow them to be ultimately consumed by his wrath. Now what's so interesting about the Lord's rebuke of the one accusing his people is that based on verse 3, we have little reason to doubt that the charges against Joshua were false. Joshua was standing before the Lord clothed in filthy garments. Now here's where it's helpful for us to understand a little bit about the role of the high priest. Like many jobs, this position required a special uniform. I've heard about brown onesies being worn in the area. And for this uniform, there were specific details for each article of clothing from the tips of his toes to the crown of his head. Not one stitch was left out of the precise instructions given to us in Exodus 28, if you want to read it. 
Without question, though, the most important part of the high priest ministry was to represent the people on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 gives the exact ordering of the procedures the Lord required the high priest to perform. And so that we don't get lost in the details, I'm going to rely on the Old Testament scholar Ray Dillard's summary of what took place. He says, A week beforehand, the high priest was put into seclusion, taken away from his home and into a place where he was completely alone. Why? So he wouldn't accidentally touch or eat anything unclean. Clean food was brought to him and he'd wash his body and prepare his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, he didn't go to bed. He stayed up all night praying and reading God's Word to purify his soul. Then on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he bathed head to toe and dressed in pure, unstained white linen. Then he went into the Holy of Holies and offered an animal sacrifice to God to atone or pay the penalty for his own sins. After that, he came out and bathed completely again and new white linen was put on him and he went in again, this time sacrificing for the sins of the priests. But that's not all. He would come out a third time and he bathed again from head to toe and they dressed him in brand new pure linen and he went into the Holy of Holies and atoned for the sins of all the people. He further explains that this was all done in public. The temple was crowded and those in attendance watched closely. There was a a thin screen and he bathed behind it, but the people were present. They saw him bathe, dress, go in, and come back out. He was their representative before God and they were cheering him on. They were very concerned to make sure that everything was done properly and with purity because he represented them before God, end quote. So then imagine the horror that would have come over the people when they saw the very one called to represent them before a holy God covered in excrement. And that's exactly what the word translated filth here means. To appear before God in this way in blatant contradiction to the purity He required merited death. Joshua deserved death. But not just because of his clothes. But because of the unrighteousness and sin that his garments symbolized. And no doubt that's what Satan was reminding of the Lord about in verse 1. But friends, here's the thing. That wasn't just true of Joshua the high priest. That's true of all of us. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. On our own, all of us stand before the Lord covered in filth for even our best deeds. Not to mention our worst. Our sin makes us guilty and our guilt makes us shamed and our shame leaves us without hope. 
This is the existence that we have carved out for ourselves like a tomb. But then we come to the incomprehensible glory of verse 4. Instead of striking him down and casting him out of God's presence, right then and there, the angel of the Lord tells those standing before him to remove those filthy garments he's wearing. He tells Joshua that this symbolizes the fact that he has taken away his iniquity from him. And not only that, but he tells him he's going to clothe him with pure vestments in their place. He takes away his filth and he gives him purity. God takes his people's sin and he gives them his righteousness. Joshua's filthy garments warranted judgment. But these pure garments secured his salvation. Now Joshua is covered from head to toe in purity in the place of that filth. And incredibly, the Lord not only approves of everything that's happened to him, he is the very one who authored it. He did it all. Joshua did nothing. Think about it. Joshua is clothed in filthy garments. Joshua had committed iniquity. Joshua deserved death. And that means that Satan's accusations were true. But they weren't true anymore. They were only true about who Joshua was. And not who God had made him to be. Now, Joshua was clothed with pure vestments. Now, his iniquity had been removed from him. And apparently, by this point, Zechariah has gotten so caught up in what's happening that he can't help but burst out for Joshua to be given a clean turban to go along with his clean clothes and his excitement. And I just encourage us as a congregation, as we are just beginning to work through this passage, that we should experience a kind of joy and excitement, not just about what the Lord has done in our own lives by saving us, but about what He has done in one another's lives by saving them. Because the reality is, so often we listen to ourselves too much instead of talking to ourselves more. The Puritans used to talk about this, of the need to preach to ourselves. That we would not just listen to the temptations and thoughts that come into our minds that tell us how rotten and filthy and dirty and washed up we are, but instead we would preach the gospel to ourselves in light of who we are now in Christ. And sometimes we don't just need to hear that from ourselves, we need to hear that from one another. So that as we hear a tone of despair in another brother or sister's voice, as they seem to be putting too much emphasis on who they were or what their sin means for them, instead of what Christ has secured on their behalf, we step in and say, brother, sister, don't you know what's true about you now? That is true. Your sin is real. It has warranted judgment, but it has been paid for. Your blood, Christ, has covered this sinner's soul. 
so that even now, as we sit, as we stand in the presence of one another, we are with those who will be with God forever and forever and forever. Now Joshua has been enabled to serve the Lord as he had been called to do. Now, with these pure vestments, he is able to serve as the high priest on behalf of the people. Which leads us to the next two verses, verses 6 and 7. We maintain our intimacy with God by living in obedience to His Word. This is the point of these verses. We maintain our intimacy with God by living in obedience to His Word. Pick up in verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Now following the Lord's intervention, Joshua has gone from accused to assured. The angel of the Lord is assuring Joshua that intimacy with the Lord and the blessings of His presence are offered to him, but in order to receive them, he must live in obedience to the Lord's Word. These two ideas do not contradict one another. They complement one another. The first produces the latter, but it always does produce the latter. And now remember, to this point, Joshua has done nothing. He didn't remove his filthy garments and he didn't clothe himself in pure vestments. Those things happened to him. But here we see how he must respond to what's been done for him. He must walk in God's ways and keep his charge. To put it another way, he must faithfully obey the Lord's word with the life he's been assigned. Walking in His ways implies following Him wherever He goes. And if He does this, God will continue to allow Him to serve as high priest and He will be given, the text says, the right of access among those who are standing here. Now what does that mean? Well, in connection with the first section, those who are standing here are standing in the throne room of God. Joshua is being told he has access into the presence of the Holy One if he remains faithful. And now this could be talking about his ministry as high priest entering once a year into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt. But I think in a much broader sense, it's bigger than that. Joshua and all of God's people, by extension, are being offered intimacy with the Father. Now this intimacy is only possible when we are walking in His ways. Just think about that imagery. How could we be close with the Lord when we are walking away from Him? And the bigger question is, why would we want to? Friends, sin separates us from God. Now that, that's true legally for unbelievers and for those of us who are our believers now, why we needed Christ's righteousness applied to this. But this is also true even now, relationally, for us as believers. Christians, are you aware 
That your obedience to God impacts your relationship with Him. Sin squelches our intimacy with God. Sin is returning to the filth that we've been saved from. Like putting back on your sweat-stained, dirt-covered clothes right after you've taken a shower. Who would do that? It defeats the whole purpose. And biblically speaking, if that's what remains true of us, that is, that we go back to what we've left and we stay there, do you know what the Bible says? The more accurate picture is of a dog returning to its vomit or a pig returning to its muck. There was no real change. It only appeared that way for a time. The fact is, God becomes the Lord of everyone He saves. Lord is just another word for master. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? When Christ sets us free from the bondage of sin, He sets us free to serve Him and to enjoy Him forever with all that we are. We're not free to do whatever we want. We are bought with a price and called to glorify God with our bodies. And we do this by loving Him as we walk by faith and obedience to His Word. This is the way He has designed to bless us. This is the way that we maintain our intimacy with a holy God. And if we're walking in His ways and keeping His charge, He gives us the right to enter into His presence. That means... If we are seeking to be faithful and repenting of our sins, we are always welcome in the throne room of God in prayer. And if we're not, well then we repent, which is by definition to leave our sin and return to God. In this way, we are becoming who we truly are, even right now in Christ. We are new creations. In the words of Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, which Mitch read earlier for us as our call to worship, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christians, the one who has clothed us in perfect righteousness is the same one who is at work in us to make us righteous. It's like we're growing into our older brother's clothes one day at a time. And when we see that work in each other's lives, we need to be quick to point it out. 
it's easy as parents to go down the black hole of looking at old photos of your kids. Levi just turned one this past week, and so we are looking at photos and videos from our other kids when they were one, and you just say, where has the time gone? I don't even remember that Hadley's voice used to sound like that. What's happening to me? And when we see the growth in one another's lives, as we mark the growth around the doorframe of our houses, spiritually speaking, we need to, as brothers and sisters, say, look how you've grown, brother. Look how you've changed, sister. Don't you know that this is God's work in you so that we might be spurned on to even greater growth in grace? We can approach God with confidence as the one to help us maintain our intimacy with Him because Jesus understands our weaknesses and He died to secure that relationship with Him. Which is why in the last section we see in verses 8-10, through Jesus bore the sins of His people and gives them His peace. Jesus bore the sins of His people and gives them His peace. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring My servant the branch. For behold... On the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Now from our perspective, having a closed canon... Verses 1 through 5 are obviously pointing ahead to Christ, the great high priest, even as Matt read for us earlier. But just to make it abundantly clear, even to Zechariah's original audience, we have these verses. Now here we're told Zechariah and the priest served as a sign. Doesn't get a lot clearer than that. They were pointing ahead to someone else, the branch, the great high priest, namely Jesus Christ. Unlike Zechariah and the rest of the priests, Jesus didn't need to offer a sacrifice for his own sins before offering one for the people because he had no sin. He was and is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. So instead of repeatedly offering up an animal for his own sins on the altar, he offered up himself for his people's sins on a cross once and for all. The suffering servant bore the sins of his people in order to remove their iniquity in a single day. Now think back to that quote about the customs and procedures surrounding the great high priest leading up to the Day of Atonement. Tim Keller compares that with what happened to the great high priest. He says, centuries later, another Joshua showed up. Another Yeshua. Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. It's the same name in Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew. He staged his own Day of Atonement. One week beforehand, Jesus began to prepare. 
And the night before, he didn't go to sleep. But what happened to Jesus was exactly the reverse of what happened to Joshua the high priest. Because instead of cheering him on, nearly everyone he loved betrayed, abandoned, or denied him. And when he stood before God, instead of receiving words of encouragement, the Father forsook him. Instead of being clothed in rich garments, he was stripped of the only garment he had. He was beaten and he was killed naked. He was bathed in human spit. He endured what his people justly deserved. But why? Why would someone do that? Why would God do that? 1 Peter 3.18 tells us why. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Though He died under the weight of sin, God raised Him from the dead on the third day, and He is even now before the throne of God above. Christ's resurrection from the grave and position give us clues that God's people have the unshakable confidence and hope in where we too are headed by faith in His name. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, first, we're so glad that you're here. You couldn't have picked a better text to show up for. If you've been following along with the flow of this chapter, you'll have noticed that Christians are just like Joshua in verses 1 through 5. We're stained with filth. We deserve God's just wrath. We should be cast away from His presence forever. We can do nothing to change that or ourselves. But the kicker is that's true of you too. But God, in His mercy and grace has given us His righteousness in Christ. He lived the life we failed to live in our place. He died for our sins in our place. He was raised to give us the assurance that we will be in His place when He returns. His grace is greater than all our sin. Now, the way that what Christ has done gets credited to you is through faith. We believe in Christ as our Savior. We follow Him as our Lord. And friends, even in partial fulfillment of verse 10, it is my great privilege as the one preaching to invite you to enjoy this same salvation that has been given to us by repenting of your sins and believing in Christ. Each of us will one day soon, maybe today, maybe in 50 years, but soon, each of us will stand before the Lord in judgment. And similar to Joshua standing before the Lord in judgment, we on our own will be clothed in filth. As all the accusations are read off against us of all the sins that we have ever committed. But here's the thing. The only ones who will be saved from God's wrath, be spared from that judgment, are the ones, according to Revelation 7.14, who have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. And if you'd like to talk to someone about 
how you do that. What does that look like for you specifically? I would be honored to talk to you at the end of this service in just a few moments. And church, let me remind you of the glorious words of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the words of the song that we're about to sing, My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Not Satan's tongue, not your earthly accuser's tongue, and not yourself. But most importantly, not the Lord, because he has spoken a word of acceptance to you in Christ. So then let me encourage you to follow the advice of Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer in the 1500s. He said, When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I also shall be. Friends, because our hope is in heaven, we can dwell with peace here on this earth. The scene alluded to in verse 10 is a reference back to 1 Kings 4.25 when, quote, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. It's an image of rest and peace and security and prosperity. And the thing is, all of those are ours right now in Christ. Our aim then should be to enjoy those realities together within the church as we invite those outside the church to join us by trusting Christ to the glory of God. Now let me ask you, this is the last thing we'll say. Do rest, peace, security, and prosperity describe the general air right now in our nation or in our world? In 1735, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, were on a ship headed to America as Anglican missionaries. They happened to be on the boat at the same time a group of immigrant German Moravians were also there. And as they're making this trip across the ocean, a great storm hits their boat. And the Wesley brothers, John especially, are just shaken. They're traveling as missionaries. They've done all these pious and holy things throughout their lifetime, but they are rocked to the core because they're afraid to die. On the other hand, when they watch the Moravians... (laughs) They're actually in the middle of a worship service on the deck as everything's breaking loose. Sails are tearing, water's crashing over, and they're singing the psalms together. And that had a profound impact on the Wesley brothers. And John records that after the storm had passed, he went to the Moravians and he said, How are you able to do that? How are you not afraid when all these things are just crashing in around us? I said, Well, our hope is in Christ. And John Wesley, who was at that time self-professed missionary to the Americans, he says, 
this is when the Lord opened my eyes to the peace offered me in Jesus Christ. And he links that with his conversion. Friends, don't we know that in such an air of unrest, confusion, despair, turmoil, not just here, but the world over, we are being given a profound opportunity to show the peace of God in the way that we interact with one another, in the way that we care for one another, in the way that we love our neighbors. It's a great blessing to have a heritage at churches throughout the world, throughout the ages, have rallied together during times of the Black Plague and Spanish Flu and all kinds of other natural disasters that have gone through. And they have rallied to care for those who are in need, showing that they love Christ above even life itself. Now please don't hear this as a word to say, if, if, if you weren't here, you know somebody wasn't here, well they're sinning against the Lord. If you're afraid of contracting the coronavirus, well then shame on you, you don't have faith in Jesus. It's not what I'm saying. I'm also not calling for us as believers to stick our heads in the sand and don't pretend like we know anything. That doesn't work well. I am saying that if we, with the confidence of eternal life, are able to show the love of Christ, beginning in our own church and then broadening out to our community and to the ends of the earth, we have an incredible opportunity given to us by God to show the peace of Christ that surpasses understanding, that is offered to all who will believe if they will repent of their sins and look to Christ. Friends, we have the good news of how we can have peace with God, not just for these 70, 80, 100 years he gives us on this earth, but forever. So then may we be a people who lives that way and that God gets glory from as we do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the beauty of what you have done in sending your son to do what we could not do, to stand in our place, both to give us his pure garments and to take our filth from us. And we know that now because he is with you, if our hope is in him, we too will join him there one day. Father, may it be today. But if you decide to tarry in sending your son to proclaim us, we ask that you might give us grace to show the love of Christ, the peace of Christ to those around us in this trying time. We ask it in his name.